Our first scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Daniel, chapter 11, verses 36 through 39, and verse 45. The king will do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will say unheard of things against the god of gods. He will be successful until the time of wrath is completed, for what has been determined must take place. He will show no regard for the god of his fathers or for the one desired by women, nor will he regard any god, but will exalt himself above them all. Instead of them, he will honor a god of fortresses, a god unknown to his fathers. He will honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He will attack the mightiest fortresses with the help of a foreign god and will greatly honor those who acknowledge him. He will make them rulers over many people and will distribute the land at a price. He will pitch his royal tents between the seas at the beautiful holy mountain, yet he will come to his end and no one will help him. Our second scripture reading this morning comes from 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 1 through 4. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our, be- our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teachings allegedly from us, whether by a prophecy or by word of mouth or by letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. This is the word of God for the people of God. Back when I was a little kid, I loved to hear Bible stories about great demonstrations of courage, like Daniel standing firm when thrown into a lion's den, or young David staring down a giant, or even Peter stepping out of his boat to walk on water until he lost his nerve. They were cool stories, the kind me and my friends would imagine ourselves in as we ran around the playground at school or at the church, and a lot of their power came from the way that those biblical figures showed us who we could be. In the same way that my friends and I would pretend to be adventurers braving uncharted landscapes or space travelers fighting off an alien threat, we could easily imagine ourselves standing up courageously to kings who tried to crush our faith and the things we held most dear. You know, it's funny, I don't play make-believe anymore unless I'm with a little kid, but the same admiration that inspired those games is a reason that I believe we should still study scripture closely. When we read about these people and what they did, we can learn about what it means to live faithfully and what values have remained critical to the people of God throughout the ages. But not all of scripture requires that kind of interpretive approach, though. During the early days of the church, When Christianity was just a small movement that spread throughout urban areas and each of these churches was organized and led by committed but untrained people, 
There were times when it was unclear exactly what Christians should believe or should do. There weren't any founding documents yet, after all, and even if there had been, hardly anyone would have been able to read them, because hardly any of them would have been able to read. So much of how the early church conducted itself had to be figured out as they went, and even then, that often left them needing help. In order to combat the confusion and conflict that existed among Christians about various issues, the apostles, the primary leaders and church planters of the time, would give them help and instruction and corrections. Paul, in particular, remained in contact with many of the churches throughout Europe and the Middle East, and the letters that he wrote to them now make up most of our New Testament. These aren't vague letters, and they don't necessarily have to be confusing either. For the most part, Paul was writing to specific Christians about particular issues that they were facing, and in doing so, he was revealing a framework of beliefs and practices that have persisted for thousands of years to the church today. Well, possibly a little bit more dry and a little less fun than the brave heroes I was talking about earlier, these New Testament teachings give us more than enough to think about. And that's exactly what we're going to do over the next few weeks. We're going to be looking at these letters to the early church, these direct teachings, to see what they said to the members of the early church and what they can say to us today as members of that same ongoing eternal church. Our scripture this morning is, as I usually say, an interesting one. Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica to ensure them that the apocalypse has not already happened, that Jesus didn't come back and forget about them, and that an ominous man of lawlessness will make it obvious when the end truly is near. Basically, he says, don't worry, because God is still working and God hasn't forgotten about you. Now, what most people seem to find the most fascinating part of this is also probably the least important, so let's start by just getting it out of the way at the very beginning of this. Paul's man of lawlessness probably is a reference to the Antichrist. He does that a lot. And he's saying that he will stand opposed to God at the end of the world. Paul was not afraid to talk about the coming end of days. And so, I think that it would be in bad faith if we were to try and read anything other than that into this. But what's more interesting, and what's more important, I think, in the verses following what we read this morning, is that Paul states clearly that the man of lawlessness is just a sort of manifestation of a lawless power that's already present and active in the world that runs like a thread beneath everything that is and everything that happens. For as striking as a comment about the end of the world might be, Paul very much seems to be more concerned with this larger issue of who and what should be trusted in a lawless world. He tells the people not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us, whether by a prophecy or by word of mouth or by letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. And that carries the underlying implication that somebody has been telling them that. Someone has started a rumor 
among the Thessalonian Christians that the end has come, which is concerning enough to Paul that he would write a letter to them about it. Every once in a while, you'll hear somebody, even now, make an apocalypse prediction, or you'll see someone proclaim that they have a new revelation that supersedes our scriptures. Even today, there are ongoing, well-established religions and branches of Christianity that are based on the idea that somebody knew something that no one else did, something that's new after 2,000 years, and that we can fully trust them to communicate the word of God alone. But there's a distinct lack of humility in the idea that a person can unilaterally declare the will of God, especially especially when it's inconsistent with the scriptures and creeds that we've held as sacred for so long. We have to be careful of these sorts of claims because nobody is infallible. Even Paul back in the early days of the church, was intentional about ensuring that everything he preached, everything that he proclaimed, was consistent with the Old Testament scriptures available to him. As we've seen, this man of lawlessness is something that was taken directly from the book of Daniel with this warning of a coming lawless king. To be sure, there are plenty of trustworthy people out there. And there are good guides and influences within the church who can help us move in a more godly direction. But we have to be careful about how far we're willing to follow someone, what we're willing to believe, and most importantly, where that belief is rooted. But the, but the risk of misplacing your trust is greater than just being tempted to believe something wrong. The Thessalonians would have also been tempted to stop doing anything out of faith altogether. After all, if Jesus had already come and had left them behind, then what was the point? They already knew that their actions couldn't earn them passage into heaven, because only trusting in Christ could do that. But if they'd already missed out on the chance to be finally saved, then there wouldn't even be that left to hope in. I think this is... Uh, this issue is really important enough to Paul that he would write about it. This cuts to the heart of something that Paul was always talking about, the necessity of hope in Christ. And so it makes sense that this would be concerning to him. A false teacher who could convince the people that Jesus had already come could also probably convince him that there was nothing left to hope in and no reason to do anything at all. Do we not have a similar temptation today? Is there not a message, even within the church, that says what you do doesn't really matter? Maybe it doesn't matter because you'll never quite be good enough. Or maybe because you're perfect the way that you are. These sorts of messages have a very firm grasp on much of our culture. But there's a noticeable problem with them that goes all the way to their center. These messages are built with you as the starting point. They comment on who you are because that's what we hold as important in the present day. But those messages, which both discourage us to strive after an active faith that requires us to both serve and to be changed, are built on a false premise 
At the end of the day, your identity and your importance are determined by God alone. You think you're worthless? Well, God made you as a person of sacred worth. Oh, and you think you're perfect? Only Christ is truly perfect, and he says that all of us, every single one, needs to be born again into a different kind of life. So what's the test then? How can we know what's good teaching and what isn't, or what we should trust and what we shouldn't? I wish there was a simple answer to that, an easy litmus test for good teaching, but the truth is that our intuition, in most cases, probably isn't enough. There are some things that can help, though, If you learn the contents of Scripture, all the old stories and commandments and the writings of the apostles, which are the only infallible resources we have, then it becomes easier to recognize when something is at odds with the will of God. Knowing the apostles and Nicene creeds can help, too, because those cover the long-established basics of Christian teaching that are central to our faith. And learning church history can help you recognize when history starts to repeat itself. Back when I was in college, there was this traveling preacher who would come pretty much every year, once or twice a year. He goes all around the country, shouting at college kids about their sins, proclaiming the inevitability of hell and the idea that even the Christians who were there may not be saved unless they'd stop sinning altogether. After all, people had the ability to decide to stop sinning, and if they did that, then they could begin walking with Jesus. Now, there are a lot of things to criticize about this open-air preacher's approach and his theology, but knowing just a little bit of church history let me realize that what he was actually teaching was an awful lot like something called Pelagianism, which was denounced as a heresy in the 5th century. That's crazy to think that you'd hear a 1,600-year-old heresy from the mouth of an open-air preacher at a college campus, but there it was. It was right there, staring all of us in the face. Now, you obviously don't have to know the names of those sorts of things to recognize bad teaching. There were plenty of Christians there who knew that what this man had to say wasn't quite right, but it can help to know when the waters are murky or when you need to stand firm in your faith. See, it's all part of building a solid foundation for our beliefs. Being able to recognize bad teaching isn't exactly Paul's only point here, though. He also wanted the people of the early church to be wary of elevating human beings. And this is where we really see this passage become relevant to our present day. Paul says this as a word of caution. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. If this is how the so-called power of lawlessness manifests, then we have to watch for elements of this even now. As cautious people... It's critical that we be on guard with people who exalt themselves above all else and to watch for the lawlessness that surrounds them. 
The first thing that we're told to watch out for is an opposition to God. God, who set the world in motion, who wrote the laws of nature and created life itself, at a very pure level, he is the very source of the idea, the possibility of law. So it makes sense that lawlessness then would require undermining his authority. And that really starts to happen when we begin to blur lines. If we become convinced that right and wrong are just social fabrications or widely accepted fictions, then we begin to stumble into the dark territory of lawlessness. Some of the best and purest examples, maybe the worst examples actually, of this come from the early 20th century. We had Friedrich Nietzsche, who built his philosophy on the idea that Christian understandings of right and wrong had hampered the progress of the world. And he proposed an alternative theory that basically claimed might makes right. In other words, if you were strong enough to do something, then it was morally acceptable. His works were central to the rise and self-justification of Nazi Germany. Karl Marx proposed that religion was the opiate of the masses, a tool of the powerful to keep the common people behaved. To him, material goods were of the highest importance, and a strong political system could be a better judge of right and wrong than the Bible or any church could ever hope to be. His works led to the rise of communism and the deaths of between 60 and 100 million people. Even now, even in our present day, there's this idea that right and wrong aren't really objective, that what's acceptable can be determined by personal experience, but this, this doubts the very message of Jesus Christ. After all, we can't judge that well by ourselves because we're fallen people in need of salvation, in need of perfection. Another thing we're told to watch out for is people putting themselves above God. This has always been a problem from the very beginning of Genesis when Eve became convinced that she knew better than God about what would be good to eat. And it's just becoming more prominent as our technology improves. It's easier now than ever before to lead a public life. Just a year ago, I read an article about a seven-year-old named Ryan who made $22 million opening and playing with toys on YouTube. Other children would watch his videos, including the ads that played before them and would vicariously enjoy the excitement of opening new toys. When I checked last week, his most watched video was sitting at 1.7 billion views. He has 20 videos with over 100 million views, and countless more than, with more than a, uh, a million. We're at a place in our society where we're giving influence to people at unprecedented levels. And as we do so, we have to maintain cautious minds about what we're allowing to influence us. To be perfectly honest, a kid playing with toys isn't dangerous, not particularly so. But it definitely is a sign of the times. We may not need to worry too much about him, but there are other people who are using these decidedly modern platforms 
to spread messages that really should concern us. There was a scandal back in the 60s when John Lennon said that the Beatles were more popular than Jesus. And you can find casual dismissals of God without a whole lot of effort. But I think that the bigger danger, far more insidious than that sort of thing, is found when that sentiment is lived rather than stated. In politics, in entertainment, in communities and workplaces, there are people who strive after influence and chase after power without any reservations. And they can so often win many, many followers. And we as Christians must keep cautious minds and look closely at the motivations and ideas behind the actions. For Paul and Daniel both, the most dangerous type of person is the one who seeks personal gain above all else and also has power, like a king who desecrates a sanctuary to seek praise for himself, or worse, someone who claims that they speak with the authority or specific approval of God. Now, none of this is to say that you can't admire or agree with influencers or celebrities or public officials. Instead, it's a warning to make sure that your core motivation is found in your love for God rather than your admiration for someone else. Living as faithful Christians means that Jesus Christ has to be the center of our lives. And every other allegiance we have must be secondary to that. So we as Christians must be sure that we are exalting God alone, both in our words and our deeds, indeed in every aspect of our lives. Beyond the church, as we engage with culture and society, we have to be careful to avoid placing our faith in people rather than Christ. After all, nobody but Christ can save you, and nothing but Christ can make you righteousness or give you value. And within the church, too, we have to be extremely cautious that the message of the gospel is never overshadowed by the people proclaiming it. One of the traditional reasons that Methodist churches change clergy regularly is to avoid having churches become too dependent on one person. There have been significant, well-established, and fruitful ministries that have been completely undone because they were too reliant on their pastor. One of the biggest examples of this recently was a church in Seattle called Mars Hill. Now, Mars Hill, back in 2014, had a weekly attendance of over 12,000 people until they were struck with a controversy surrounding some things that their pastor had said online a few years before. By 2015, just one year later, that church had dissolved. Now, the Christian church has lived and grown for 2,000 years, spreading the message of Jesus Christ and changing the lives of people all around the world. So we don't need to rely on individuals that heavily. Instead, we can rely on the eternal truths that have made that kind of persistence possible. And finally, take heart in the assurance that God will, in the end, emerge victorious. When warning people about the man of lawlessness, about this dangerous king, Daniel assures them that he will ultimately be destroyed by the Lord when he comes to restore the world. 
And Paul gives a similar assurance, saying that the people can cling to their hope that the Lord will return in final victory and that lawlessness will be put to a complete end so that perfection can abound instead. So I'll give you the same assurance this morning. Be cautious, watching for false teachers and people who pursue personal gain above all else. And don't be disheartened by the chaos of our world. Our God has given us a good promise in Jesus Christ. And if we place our trust in him alone, we can know that we will not be led astray because we will have a firm foundation on which to stand. So let's go forth in Jesus' name. Amen.